Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Technological literacy has become essential. Hi, I'm Scarlett Fu with Bloomberg News, and in this episode, we chat with Lisa Lewin, CEO of General Assembly, as she discusses her leap from General Assembly student to holding the company's top position, the democratization of access to the most coveted jobs, and the future of the workplace. I'm pleased to welcome Lisa Lewin. She is the newly appointed CEO of General Assembly. GA was originally a coding boot camp that has since grown into a behemoth, a global education organization that offers in-demand skills as well as professional upskilling. It is owned by the Swiss HR company ADECO. Lisa has an education and technologist background. She was co-founder and managing partner of Ethical Ventures, which is a change management consulting firm that helps leaders build organizations with a positive impact on society that was just prior to joining General Assembly. And before all of that, she worked at Pearson and McGraw-Hill Education. Lisa, it's so great to speak with you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me to be here. So I want, I usually start with your career path and you know what kind of brought you to the point that you're at now. For you specifically, your career path has this recurring theme of education. Your mom was a teacher and I read that she was the one who taught you how to read. Uh, mm -hmm. You went on to study marketing and international business at WashU in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. After college, you worked in market research at NPD Group. Was it your intention to work in education, to return to education? Uh, great question. It you know it wasn't uh, as, at first, right? So you mentioned that I actually started my career in data and technology, um, which I really enjoyed because I always had you know I was both always very left brain and right brain. I had a creative streak. I was a former drama kid, um, and but I was also you know really really strong in math. And so um, you know being able to sort of tell stories um, and really understand business insights uh, using market research was kind of a way of getting the creative creative side because it was very marketing leaning and also uh, getting my my quant uh, my quant kicks. Um, and so, uh, you know, had a great run uh, at the NPD group um, and really developed, you know, my chops and data and research and analytics and, uh, and tech. Um, then went to business school and uh, as much fun as I had had uh, bringing my skills to, you know, food and beverage and consumer packaged goods, which was the industry that I spent, um, you know, those pre B-school years in, I just really felt like um, I wanted to make my career in a place where I could truly have uh, impact. And if I looked at my own life, um, you know, education uh, has, is that place um, that really offers true uh, generational social mobility. Um, and I'd experienced that in my own family. You know, my great grandparents had uh, at most an eighth grade education and within two generations, uh, my parents and their siblings all had uh, advanced degrees and had climbed um, the socioeconomic ladder through education. And I wanted to be able to um, bring my data and tech and strategy skills that I had developed to um, a, an industry uh, where I could really have impact and, um, and work for mission-driven organizations. Now, you went to HBS, as you mentioned, and whenever someone goes to business school, the summer internship is critical. You worked at Boston Consulting Group as your summer internship. 
afterwards, as a newly minted MBA, you joined McGraw-Hill. We usually see people use their MBAs to transition from one career path to another, often to consulting, to technology, um, to banking. In your case, you went the opposite way. You went from consulting, which was during the summer, and you went to education. What gave you the conviction to go away from those popular fields to education? Sure. Um, I, I think it was the combination of a few things. So first, um, you know, I did have all of these data and research and consulting um, uh, skills at that point and ended up, was lucky enough, um, even though I was graduating into a bit of a tough job environment on um, 2003 for, for those uh, for those old enough uh, uh, to, uh, to remember was, you know, really coming off of the era of, um, the uh, you know the the huge sort of scandals, ethical scandals um, with Enron and Arthur Anderson, and the um, and and the job market had not fully recovered uh, in that moment, and so uh, I was really really lucky and had a number of offers from the big you know kind of white glove consulting firms, but you know as I said before, I I really felt that um, while I, I loved strategy and and feel like I'm a strategist at heart, I really wanted to go into a field um, that. That where I could have impact, and uh, McGraw Hill, the you know education company, um, uh, like all publishers, educational publishers at the time, were just the beginning of kind of digital transformation and thinking in really dynamic ways about how to bring data and technology to bear on things like increasing student achievement and growing learner outcomes. And that felt like a, um, a good ride to get on um, for a number of reasons, uh, but mostly because, uh, again, I wanted to use my skills to doing something that I thought would have true impact. And I've been in the education field for the most part ever since. Yeah, McGraw-Hill and then Pearson, these are kind of two old school education names um, in that space. Talk a little bit about what you did there. And you mentioned that they were just starting to realize the the, um, the magic, the abilities that technology can really bring to their business. How much did they rely on technology? How much technology did they utilize at the time that you joined? Sure. I mean, then the, it was, it was largely at the beginning, right? I mean, you know, this was, you know, this was a, a time in the, um, in the early aughts, if you will, where, um, textbooks were still the biggest product driver for a lot of these uh, for a lot of these education companies uh, and um, and and they had just moved into you know into an era where um, sort of you know homework systems were were starting to get attached in like cd-roms that were vacuum packed to books um, and then that later became you know software driven and internet driven um, uh, uh, education products education technology. And so, you know, I feel like I've, I've really been lucky in having a front row seat at seeing from, from multiple perspectives, um, certainly from the publisher perspective, from the educator perspective, the ways in which um, tech has really transformed teaching and learning and done that at every stage, done that, you know, certainly um, at the K-12 education stage, um, certainly done that in, in college and post-secondary education and, um, and, and is thoroughly transforming even corporate training, uh, which is really the the space uh, that um, the GA plays in. Yeah, you mentioned textbooks. I think about how one hundred dollar textbooks, at least, are just dying to be disrupted because you know that can't go on. Whenever we talk to people, entrepreneurs um, at Cornell Tech at Bloomberg, um, they all stress how education is this legacy industry that's very resistant to 
uh, adopt or embrace technology or to be disrupted. Do you find that this has been the case? Uh, I think it depends on what part of the of the space you're 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 talking about, right? So, you know, I think that the last twenty years has seen you know a huge amount of um, of both disruption and um, and innovation and entrepreneurship. Um, you know, GA certainly being you know one one shining example of that. Uh, where I think there is a lot of creativity and thought being put into how to um, deliver really high quality teaching and learning at scale. Um, I think there are, you know, great experiments happening uh, all over the world at how do you bring a high quality um, educational opportunity to everyone uh, that uh, to everyone that needs it. Um, where I think there has been a, a real uh, challenge and why there's still a tremendous amount of opportunity for disruption ahead is that if you look at, say, as you mentioned, the, the price of, of, a, of a college education, um, we're still, there's still a fundamental problem there where when people go to get a degree, it's with an, an expectation that that degree, that that high price degree that they're paying for is going to put them on a, a lifelong career path to a uh, high wage, to a high wage job. And that promise, that sort of guarantee that if you pay for college education, that you'll have some degree of, of economic security and career stability um, has really been disrupted in every way, um, in, in large part because the, the return on that investment has been questioned, right? The debt that mm -hmm. students are graduating with um, and then finding themselves uh, underemployed relative to that investment has called all of that into question. And even in this COVID moment, when students are sending in those tuition checks to have an experience that uh, where, you know, here in the pandemic, they're, you know, largely sort of, you know, sidelined and taking online courses from inside their dorm rooms is once again, um, asking people to call into question, what's, what's really going on here? And, um, and how do we ensure that when people are investing in their education, they're getting the outcomes um, that they want and expect from it. So, um, so that's a way of saying that I think there's certainly been a lot of innovation, but there's still quite a lot of, um, of innovation ahead. Yeah, very well said. The stakes are so high because the cost is so high. The investment cost is so massive that um, you really need to get something out of it. I, I want to, obviously, there's a lot to, to mine there, but I want to go back to you and, and General Assembly because I read that you first encountered General Assembly actually as a student who took some classes. Tell us how that happened. Um, it was, I believe it was after you started your own company, right? What, what class did you take at General Assembly? I did. Uh, long before becoming a CEO, GA found its way into uh, into my professional life. So the uh, the first example of that was uh, when uh, I left McGraw Hill. It was to uh, start my own my own um, ed tech company, and um, and as I'm sure other entrepreneurs uh, remember these days, uh, you know sometimes you're do you're you're the chief cook and bottle washer. So I was actually doing some of my own coding um, and also, you know, really just teaching myself because as you had said, you know, my skills were in, you know, data and tech and in marketing, but not necessarily um, in things like human centered product design. And so the fact that I could go to G8 
UGA um, and also visit, you know, its super cool campuses uh, and be with other like-minded um, tech forward entrepreneurs. Um, it was just a great way to kind of top up my skills uh, that I needed to be successful at starting my own company. And then, you know, several years later, when I was running the global uh, higher ed product team at Pearson, you know, overseeing, you know, over a thousand technologists, learning technologists, um, I would send staff to GA uh, to uh, to learn, um, to upskill and reskill and ensure that, that, that the staff that I led had the digital skills that they needed to really be uh, successful and, and effective. So I was a huge fangirl of GA, uh, even before um, I got the uh, the call last year that uh, that uh, Jake, who I know is uh, a, a friend of yours as well, um, uh, had decided to sort of move on and that they were looking for a leader to drive the next chapter of the company. Yeah, it certainly helps that um, you knew the product and you knew the venue and you had a good understanding of who the customer was. So. You mentioned that you sent a lot of your own employ, uh, sent a lot of your team members, your staff members to take classes at GA. I believe you said that you uh, believe there was positive ROI, return on investment in going to GA classes and taking GA classes. Was there any way, I mean, you're a quant person, was there any way for you to measure that? Oh, sure. I mean, it was easy, very easy to measure just in their sort of productivity coming back from from those those programs. Um, you know, I, here here's the thing about tech. It's constantly, constantly changing. So just because you are fresh uh, with those skills, you know, uh, today uh, means that you you aren't necessarily uh, as as up to date a year from now just because of the speed of change. So think about you know, just in the course of the last two years, how much has changed in artificial intelligence and in machine learning. Um, you know, those are the kinds of, of things that end up being a, a drag on large enterprises' abilities to, um, to compete uh, and to innovate. Um, and think of in a time, you know, now, for example, when years worth of digital transformation has occurred over a matter of months, Companies are looking at their workforce and thinking, do I have the skill set among my employees uh, to really be able to, um, to move as quickly and in as agile a way and as, in, as innovative a way as, uh, as we need to to survive? Uh, and so, you know, as I, as I learned back then when I was, you know, managing my own uh, large digital teams, and as I certainly believe today, um, putting that kind of investment and upskilling and reskilling your your staff has uh, both an immediate and a long-term payout. All right, sounds good. Uh, you mentioned Jake Schwartz. He, of course, is the co-founder of General Assembly, and you succeeded him last summer. Wait, this is 2021, last summer, summer of 2020. Mm -hmm. the, the, the years just melt into one another. Um, what Every was day like? is Blur's day, as they say. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like to take over from someone who is so... Um, closely defined with the company. I mean, he's got such a long and intimate history with the company. He's kind of the personification of it. He laid out the vision for it. I mean, how do you carve your own path there? And do you feel like your vision is different from, from his vision? 
It's such a great question. Um, so, uh, so first, if Jake sees this, hey, Jake, uh, uh, he, you know, he's he's such um, an iconic character because he created such a, a gem in the industry. Um, you know, GA really innovated and um, and really helped establish and put the whole boot camp model on on the map, um, reinventing what uh, tech education could look like. Um, and so, you know, he, uh, he deserves so much credit as do his fellow founders and, and the, and the incredible team that they had behind them at creating such an incredible and durable company and franchise. Um, and so, you know, following a founder is always, you know, that's always going to be a, a hard act to follow, but, you know, every company reaches a, a stage where, you know, maybe it's ready for the next generation of, of leadership. And, and there are qualities that Jake has that I don't, and, and uh, certainly qualities that I have that, uh, that, that, that Jake would probably say that he doesn't have. And, and sometimes that's, and sometimes that's really good. Sometimes it's really good as a, as a company is thinking about charting its, its future uh, to, to shake things, to shake things up a little bit. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm forging my own, my own path with, uh, with this incredible, incredible team of people. And, you know, and we have some really big ambitions. Um, this is a different moment than when GA was established. Um, you know, when, when GA started, um, you know, the, the sort of problem to be solved was, uh, you know, young people wanting to get access to, um, you know, to hot tech industries and, and maybe uh, begin their own startups. And we certainly, certainly still have people who, who come to us for that. But now, um, you know, now the, the, the demands um, are, are a little, and the problems to be solved are, are a little bit different. Now it's, you know, folks who are looking again for that opportunity for kind of social mobility who maybe, yeah. you know, don't have a full, um, you know, a full college degree, or maybe it's, uh, you know, folks who, uh, who, who don't have skills to access the, the millions of open digital jobs uh, around the world. And mm -hmm. so that's what our, our sites are set on. It's really, um, first of all, becoming more, much more global, Mm -hmm. um, and ensuring that everyone around the world can have access to uh, to this kind of op opportunity. Um, second, really doubling down on on impact and ensuring that you know when people join us, that what they're coming out with is a set of marketable skills and a job. Um, and uh, and and three, to really grow the global talent pool of technologists, because as you know, there's a big demand and supply challenge right now in tech, where there are more jobs open, and 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 that number is growing every day, than there are people with the tech and digital skills right. to fill those jobs, and that's right. really what we're focused on. Yeah, the the skills mismatch is, is something that has been persistent over the last couple of years. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the boot camp part of it because I remember when I spoke with Jake back in uh, November of 2017, General Assembly was still very much a coding boot camp. It that was how it was uh, known throughout New York. The range of classes has clearly grown beyond that. Um, what's your most popular class right now, Lisa? Sure. I mean, right now, our software engineering, um, you know, uh, what we call our immersive is still our most popular full time offering. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and a lot of that is because the number of software developer roles 
has just continued to grow. It, it even grew, you know, it, all of last year, even amidst during uh, a surging unemployment in, in almost every every other sector. So, you know, that continues to be really, really um, our, our strongest and most popular area. Um, I'll, I'll also say, uh, if you look beyond kind of, you know, the programs like data and engineering, um, you know, we also have seen a, a tremendous, you know, tremendously strong growth in our, uh, what we call our consumer business, which is where individuals come to us to go through some accelerated program, a boot camp or a part-time program. And, uh, and we had a, a really big increase in that, in fact, uh, and it peaked uh, really in the first half of 2020 when COVID was peaking. And we think that, um, and we know that that's because uh, for, for folks, at least folks that don't have kids, uh, there was just more time. A lot of folks had more time on their hand to invest in, um, in their own education. And then a number of people um, also, unfortunately, were, were furloughed during COVID and used that as a moment to really think about how do they top up their skills. So, um, so all of our programs uh, really saw some, some growth uh, with that, that core, those core coding skills and software engineering um, still being the most sought. How big are these classes? I mean, especially if there are people coming in all of a sudden um, at the start of the pandemic that you may not have been anticipating. I mean, can you scale the classes quickly? Sure. I mean, one of the things that I think has been um, really a, a big transformation for, for GA is, as you know, um, pre-pandemic, we were really largely known for our in-person, um, on-campus courses. Uh, you know, GA has always offered, uh, at least for the last, you know, five years or so, um, some remote offerings. Uh, but, but, but really, most of our experience was so focused in that, in that campus experience within those four walls where there's literally a physical limit on the number on the number of people that you can um, that 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 we can hold in a in a class and the pandemic really forced us to rapidly pivot to um, an all remote format practically overnight and it was really important to us to do that without sacrificing on quality and so um, you know while we were previously uh, we'll call it campus first um, the the present and the future of GA is really uh, a truly hybrid model where we're able to blend in-person instruction and flexible remote coursework. And that, you know, allows us to extend, um, say, a, you know, a popular instructor and allow them to, to teach a course and teach a class of folks that may be on the other side of the country. Um, so that's one of the ways in which we've been able to kind of build up capacity um, to meet demand. Right. But as um, schools have to go remote, virtual, or at least add this hybrid component, uh, certainly at the higher education level, a lot of people say that that's not worth the same as paying for in-class learning. D does that crimp your ability to uh, charge for these classes? I mean, what does the cost structure look like as you go fully remote versus the in-person, in-class learning that happened before? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, one of one of the things that's very different about about us that that may be a little bit different than than higher ed is, you know, higher ed is sort of you know a, a, a crowning example of sort of you know a lot of fixed physical costs, right? Because there are sprawling campuses that sort of have to be maintained, um, and so you know they really have to think about sort of you know physical you know utilization of physical real estate. For us, even though the campus was um, was 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 profoundly um, 
you know, was, was a big part of, of, of GA's sort of brand. Um, you know, ultimately, the value that we're delivering wasn't inside those physical four walls. The value that we were delivering was really, really high quality, super relevant digital skills, um, student uh, support, career coaching, and the um, and help with getting a job. Right. Our our outcomes, uh, what you know, the job placements, which we internally describe as outcomes, is the thing that we are laser focused on, ensuring that people who come and are willing to dedicate and devote, you know, 12, 12 weeks of, of their lives with us uh, to get access to a new career that we deliver uh, on on that promise. And so all of that support, um, the career coaching support, the student success support, you know, the quality instruction, the um, up to the minute uh, curriculum, you know, those those are things that we fortunately have shown that we're able to to continue to deliver with a high quality experience, um, in, even in this uh, remote environment. And in fact, um, in this moment, we've seen our um, customer satisfaction actually uh, uh, increase um, in this in this moment. So, and I think that that's a testament because we've really worked hard to try to maintain that that experience even as it shifted from physical to um, to remote. This is going to be an overly broad question, but. How do you, what, what types of jobs do you help students obtain? Does um, General Assembly help students get? I mean, is it something that they wouldn't have been able to get uh, before because they didn't study engineering and they didn't have that STEM background? You can, can I go from a history major to someone who can get a job in software and engineering and development just through a, a course at General Assembly? Yes, I mean, I think that's what you're describing is exactly the magic of of not only GA, but this sort of accelerated program or or boot camp model is that it was it was designed uh, to do exactly that. In fact, uh, one of the, uh, the the original kind of core target markets uh, for for GA in its earliest days was that liberal arts uh, you know major, that liberal arts graduate who wanted to be able to be a UX designer. And so, you know, the curriculum and the programs are, are designed to do exactly that. It's how do you create a really immersive and intensive experience over this focus period of time um, and create cohorts of students that are not just learning um, from the instructor, but also from the, the, the practice and the work that they're doing um, and from each other. How do you create that sort of environment where um, after that intensive period, people are really leaving with uh, marketable skills that can be applied on, on day one of the job? And, um, and we certainly do that in, um, you know, in, in software engineering, but we also do that in UX design. We do that in product management. Um, data has been one of the uh, areas that's been um, growing the, the fastest for, for GA. So, so that's really the, our, our sweet spot is, is uh, delivering an experience that gives people, that allows people to, again, upskill and reskill um, mm -hmm. in those tech and digital spaces so that they can apply them on the job. And because you're so focused on outcome, you're really able to incorporate the feedback that you get from uh, the employers, the future employers, in terms of what kind of classes you can offer. Um, if I were to go in there and uh, take uh, one of the, the, the courses to, to try to get a job in, in technology, 
what percentage of students are like me where I pay out of pocket to, to kind of increase my odds of getting a new job versus um, someone who gets sent by their company to just upskill uh, what they do have in their portfolio? Sure. Well, we so there are. It's interesting that you that you did talk about employers because um, employers and enterprises have become a larger and larger part of of our business generally. Um, you know, we were talking earlier about how you know the the sort of just speed of digital transformation, um, particularly in this moment of the pandemic, has just been absolutely uh, breathtaking. And even before that, just the pace of technological change was moving um, at, uh, at at breakneck speed. And so, you know, employers, uh, we have an entire enterprise business that is focused on um, employers who want to, you know, upskill and reskill cohorts of their of their own employees um, to to give them these sorts of skills. And uh, we do um, some really, uh, uh, you know, highly contextualized, customized work uh, with uh, many of the Fortune uh, 1000, um, helping them upskill, uh, certainly in software engineering, but increasingly um, in, in data, as I shared. So we're really, really focused on, on workforce transformation, while at the same time, our consumer side of the business is helping you know, those individuals who want to take their career trajectory um, in their own hands um, and helping those folks uh, get access to a new career as well. So is that consumer enterprise split 50-50, 40-60, 10-90? Sure. Um, right now, about uh, a little over two-thirds of our business, almost 70% of our business is still on that consumer side. Yeah. Uh, but it's actually the, the enterprise side of our business that, um, that, that, that over the last few years has, um, has grown the fastest. Got it. Got it. Um, given that two-thirds of your um, customers are, are students who are paying out of pocket, does that limit who's able to access your classes? Well, it, it used to. Um, when uh, when we were only uh, really able to to cater to individuals who uh, were paying out of pocket and doing self pay, um, that certainly did put a limit on um, on who we were able to to really reach. Uh, but I think uh, one of the 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 innovations in in the space that I think has has on balance net net been really good is the um, innovation and development of more uh, what we call consumer financing options. Mm -hmm. um, and those include, uh, you know, opportunities where 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 folks can come and enjoy and 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 complete these programs and pay um, once they've actually uh, received a, a job. Um, and so, being able to sort of offer that kind of, um, of, of 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 financing has allowed us to give people who may not quite have enough in the bank right now, but are just as deserving of having an opportunity like this to transform their career, that chance to do just that. Yeah, there's also uh, these income sharing agreements, ISAs, mm -hmm. where um, students pay back a certain percentage of their post-program salaries for a certain period of time. Exactly. Do you think we'll see these kinds of innovations, what you're referring to, the ISAs, replace traditional student loans at places like traditional four-year colleges? I mean, you offer a compelling product and you're able to offer terms that are more aligned with what uh, a lot of people want. Is this something that threatens to replace the traditional student loan? 
You know, it's a it's a great question. I I honestly think only only time will tell. Um, and uh, you know, and the 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 students uh, as we as 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 you describe them that we're that we're catering to are often older and aren't necessarily you know your college age students. So we're mm-hmm. um, so we're you know we're not we're not you know in in that same space as kind of higher education. Um, you know where where they've really got uh, uh, where there really is a question about um, sort of student debt. Uh, and how heavy it has become, and how um, there are students that are graduating uh, from college with um, with such significant debt that uh, it it really delays their ability to you know make investments that like you know in in homes for example um, that would have been very very common a generation before. Um, so you know so so on the college side on the higher ed side uh, it is very very clear that there's still a lot of room for uh, transformation. Um, of student financing. And, uh, and I know that there are certainly conversations happening in that sector around whether or not the, this idea of the, of the income share um, might be one of the, one of the ways to, to think about that. But ultimately, the, the real issue is, is, is the cost of, yes. of, of higher education. Um, you know, financing it is, is one thing, but I think it's, you know, the, the real fundamental question is, um, you know, what, what, what must be done to really sort of change the entire um, cross structure of higher ed uh, uh, so that, um, you know, that opportunity can be more affordable. Absolutely. You, you said it so well. Um, so I want to tie that in with how a lot of your students are perhaps older students, um, those who have had full-fledged careers and are looking for a change. Are you seeing a lot more of your students skew younger, uh, perhaps people who have deferred going to college or are um, taking a break from, from college right now because of the pandemic? I mean, I COVID has disrupted everything. And I imagine for you guys as well, it's, it's helped you in the beginning, but are you seeing uh, a different kind of student emerge as a result? Sure. I mean, in COVID, what what we're seeing more of is is people that have been that have been furloughed, right? So you know, so adults that are you know certainly past um, college age who who find that you know when you think about entire industries, retail, hospitality, uh, tourism, I mean, it, it, there are there are entire job categories that um, are are going extinct or are at the very least um, severely, severely um, impacted. And so that's really where we're, we're seeing um, a, 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 a big difference is, you know, people who find themselves not just furloughed from a company, but, but where their entire sector um, mm-hmm. has really been impacted and they've got, you know, and maybe they have families or, and, uh, and they've got to figure out how to make their way uh, to a, a higher paying career and, and fast. Um, mm-hmm. So really it's that demographic that we're, that we're starting to see um, an increase with. Okay. I guess I'm asking for selfish reasons as well. I've got a, a senior in high school right now who's applying to colleges and at $80,000 a year, probably 90000 by the time he actually gets to school, um, it just doesn't seem like it's worth it unless he can get a good job coming out of it. And maybe he'll be able to do that with an engineering degree, but maybe it makes more sense for him to go to something like General Assembly. Um, how much would I spend for him to get the equivalent of an engineering bachelor's degree uh, at General Assembly, is that possible? Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's actually a really interesting question. If you're talking about kind of you know getting you know sk- certain skills, job skills, 
Um, I do think that accelerated programs and boot camps um, are, are a really high value um, and compelling way to, to do that. Um, but, you know, if you're talking about your, you know, your, your son uh, uh, who's in high school, you know, there are certain things uh, that, uh, that college does that um, even an accelerated and, you know, and boot camp program does. I mean, if you think about what college does, it's not about just skills, right? It's about, you know, how do you take, you know, an 18 year old and sort of um, uh, give them the critical thinking skills, the, the social skills, um, the, uh, the sort of space for, for, for experimentation and growth and, um, you know, make them, you know, decent citizens and, and, and engaged learners in the world, you know, you're not going to get that necessarily in a, in a 12 week boot camp. So um, I would definitely say that uh, for, for, for looking for job ready skills, we are very, very proud of um, the programs that that we've been um, that we've been able to produce that that do just that for people at every stage. Because it's not just about you know going to and getting a single degree at the beginning of your life. It's about um, really continuing to keep your skills up to date over a, over your life. Um, you know, lifelong skill building um, yeah. that keeps up with the pace of technology. Um, but I still uh, think that there is uh, very much a place for um, for college and, and university education, um, just in terms of you know giving young people um, a good a good start on their um, on their life path. Okay, you ruined my plan to save uh, so sorry thousand dollars over the next couple of years. <laughs> well, the price <laughs> I can't defend, but uh, but uh, you but can I, you can. Um, you mentioned job ready skills. How much do you think um, employers are increasingly demanding or wanting soft skills, communication skills? You mentioned critical thinking skills that kids develop in college. I mean, those are things that people can always use an upgrade of, a refresher of. But soft skills, the ability to communicate um, abstract concepts with your peers, with your colleagues, with your managers. Do you see that as something that employers are increasingly demanding and that's something that you can offer in, in your programs? So I absolutely think that those skills are are critical and increasingly critical. You know, we are, uh, you know, more connected uh, than ever. Um, industries are, are, are more competitive and require more innovation. Um, and, uh, and, and now we're, you know, we're on the, the precipice of the future of work that's requiring all of us to figure out how to do things like, you know, build teams and create inclusive environments when, you know, most of us are, you know, sitting at home and interacting only with our device all day, with our, you know, laptops um, and desktops all day. So I think um, for all those reasons, uh, those soft skills are going to continue to be incredibly, incredibly important. Um, you know, we at GA are very, very focused on this global problem of closing the tech and digital skills gap. Um, and so the way that we think about um, soft skills is how do you um, embed uh, you know, whether in the in the career coaching, in the instruction, in the kind of you know the student success uh, uh, work that we provide to students, how do you in those kind of adjacent areas um, ensure that those soft skills are are part of the conversation and and and, and getting included because they are they are certainly going to be increasingly in in demand. Going back to um, your prior job, your prior life, where you were managing partner at Ethical Ventures, you were helping 
companies and leaders build organizations with a positive impact on society. I know you've talked about how software engineers in general um, don't have a universal set of standards the way that, say, doctors in the medical industry do, because the industry is just not there yet. It's not as mature. But you're in a position to perhaps change that. Does General Assembly have a set of standards or ethics that, um, that you try to instill in your students the way that perhaps you would think about when you're at Ethical Ventures? I think every player in the technology space has got to be thinking about tech ethics. Um, there is no question that uh, technology is completely, to state the obvious, um, is completely ubiquitous in our, in our lives. Um, and, and increasingly, particularly when you think about things like, you know, like AI, um, there are, there are opportune, unfortunate opportunities that as uh, developers build and develop products that our own very human failings and, and biases can end up getting literally coded into the technology that we use. So I think, you know, every everyone that's thinking um, about uh, and, and considers themselves a technologist, whether those are, you know, you know, education, tech education providers like us, but, but more importantly, um, tech companies that are building and developing mm -hmm. um, our technology products, they've really got to be thinking about taking, you know, human-centered and ethical approaches to, to product design, um, ensuring that, you know, sort of tech ethics uh, ends up getting, you know, sent Entered in into the conversation um, because uh, the the alternative uh, is a pretty scary one. And some people might say that we're looking at the alternative right now. Um, I noticed, Lisa, that you're not on Twitter. You're also not on Facebook, and I'm guessing you're not on Instagram either. You've talked a lot in the past about big tech and the ethics that they need to display more of, the need perhaps to regulate them as well, the way that the government regulated big oil in the past. How do you think about government regulation of big technology and what that means for companies like General Assembly, which is training the next generation of technologists? I, I do participate in some in some social media. Um, uh, well, actually, I don't, I don't know if LinkedIn is considered social. It's quite social, but um, but it's a very I, serious I, social media. It's bit, exactly that's right. Um, but uh, but I did uh, I, I I did take a, a bit of a moratorium, particularly in the um, in the run up to uh, the the U.S. elections. I did take a, mo a moratorium from from social media uh, for for a couple of reasons. One, uh, because uh, just for mental health reasons, I'm, I'm already a prolific uh, reader of news and that never changed. But um, the way that um, the way that content was starting to get served up to me in some of these platforms uh, was um, was honestly just a, a, a challenge to, you know, my ability to, to sort of stay Zen during the day um, <laughs> and focused. Um, but then the other, which you alluded to, is it just kind of got a little harder to to defend there for a while. Um, you know, for someone who cares deeply about not just tech ethics, but also about um, you know the health of of, of democracy, um, and not just the, you know our democracy here in the U.S., but you know democracy um, around the world. Um, it just was getting harder to defend what uh, you know at least uh, you know at the time you know a year and a half two years ago 
was um, a, a bit of obliviousness among some of the, the really large tech players oh, about wow. the, the role that they were playing um, in, uh, in our civic life. I do think that that is changing. I don't think uh, we're at perfect yet, um, but uh, you know, I, I'm holding out hope that there will be enough transformative change that uh, I'll be able to you know, rejoin rejoin less serious social media. <laughs> All right. In the meantime, you can find Lisa on LinkedIn. Lisa, I really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or visit the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast homepage to sign up for the invites to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this event series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.